This is Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's podcast series interviewing clean tech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Now, you and I talked about VP picks, and you asked me a question, then I gave you the answer I wanted to give, and you said, hey, that's cheating. Um, But I said I I preferred Harris, and I gave my reasons for it. you know, I, I still think she, and she's still pretty much odds on, um, you know, yeah, because but, my question is who you thought would be picked. Right. And, yeah. and you, you thought the person would be picked, but you chose the person you wanted to be picked, uh, which, you know, I wasn't, wasn't sure if it was, uh, a fair answer, but yeah, but, but it was making the case and the case but seems to be being made by many. She's so still a, she's still a top there's, I, I haven't, maybe you have, I haven't seen any really strong indications of who he would go with i still see people pushing for their preferred candidates um do you have any have you seen anything come out that implies he's leaning towards someone so statement one um there's a rhythm to elections election campaigns first you know you go through this entire process where you start ramping up for the primaries and a bunch of people throw their uh you know uh hats into the ring and they start making their initial speeches to the press and a whole bunch of people who want to raise their profile or are serious about um, becoming the presidential candidate, you know, make noise, get press and start evincing their version of the democratic platform on specific issues that they think matter. So we start getting a lot of press prior to the primaries then the primaries actually start and you go through the um, you go through the debates and the platform releases and the platform releases are timed so that, you know, candidates aren't conspiring. They're just doing it. If, you know, somebody if Warren came out on Monday, then Harris wouldn't come out with hers on Monday too. She'd, you know, they'd take a little time between them so that, Boris's platform gets a bunch of attention, then Harris's platform gets a bunch of attention, then Biden's platform gets a bunch of attention. You've got a lot of opportunity for the press to engage and for the chattering classes. And, you know, in in this case, Zach, you and I are members of the chattering classes, um, are give them something to talk about for a news cycle. Then you get through the debates and the debates give fodder for all the social media clips and news anchors and a news cycle. And once again, though, it gives the opportunity for the democratic party to evince their values and ideals and to express things about the various candidates. And so people who are up and coming, um, future leaders will often become part of the process, not for this cycle's success, but to position them as national figures with a national profile and name recognition for the next cycle or the cycle after that. 
Um, but it's all providing fodder to the press about the Democratic Party's platform, ideals, and the people. And so you go through that process, and sometimes it's a bit spiky and ugly, but you still, you're keeping the attention of the press. So, so now we're in a different thing. The, you know, the primaries end a little early. Bernie, you know, because of COVID-19, Bernie said, Biden's the guy, I'm out. Um, he wasn't going to be able to win. He didn't have any numbers that would enable him to go into the convention and win. Um, so he quit early. So that gives you a bit of a void in terms of press coverage, which is mostly consumed by COVID-19. But then you get into the cycle of run-up to the convention. The convention is another big press blitz, but how do you keep the press and how do you keep the chattering classes going and how do you feed the news cycle and how do you use that interim period to keep eyes on the Democratic Party, its future leaders, and its up-and-coming stars? Well, you keep fronting them as potential vice presidents. And so now you have a whole bunch more press for the Democratic Party and for its new, and for its campaign platform. And, and every time Biden's option gets picked, you know, somebody, part of his platform gets mentioned. You know, so people will say, well, Harris was very strong on uh, climate change. So if she got picked, then, you know, that feeds into Biden's platform. Warren gets mentioned, then, you know, well, her focus on Wall Street, people talk about Biden's focus on Wall Street, you know, whatever that is. So you keep getting the threads of the Democratic campaign platform pulled out and all these press things. And so they never announce the vice presidential pick until a couple of days before the convention. That period between the end of the primaries and the convention is all about the vice presidents and creating press and news cycles, feeding news cycles around VP candidates. So he's had 10 on the short list. Um, and he, at a certain point, very early said it was going to be a woman. And, you know, there's been a lot of, he's never said it's going to be a black woman, but, you know, he said there are four black women on my short list. And it's sort of assumed, especially in this, uh, this year with Black Lives Matter, it's like, if he doesn't pick a black woman, and also, I mean, in the primaries, it was heavily considered that black voters, black women driven probably were huge to his success. You know, he, he came out of South Carolina. He was going into South Carolina looking dead and he came out of South Carolina winning um, heavily on the backs of black black voters. And so I, I, I mean, I think it would be the biggest disaster of, of all if he didn't pick a black woman as VP. Um, I've previously said I, I would love him to pick Val Demings from uh, from Florida, not just because I'm from Florida, but because uh, she has a very strong, um, actually, law and order background. She's police chief of Orlando. Uh, she So I think that's a good way to, you know, I think that would be a good way to sort of cross the spectrum a little bit for them. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a sensitive issue. A lot of people are concerned. Uh, I, I don't think rightfully, but a lot of people are concerned uh, about the, the left going too far left away from, from that. Uh, I think it's ironic considering Trump has dismantled law and order like no one before. But um, but she's really good at that. And she also has a, a communication style and a presence and, and, and um, character that to me somehow feels a little a little conservative or at least moderate. Um, uh, so I, I think it would, you know, it, it would be appealing to certain voters who have a foot in the 
more conservative, moderate side of things. Uh, and I think she's just extremely brilliant and eloquent. And she's, she just like, there's so many times where her statements on something to me are the absolute best statements on a subject. Like I see a lot of great people saying great stuff, but she just says things in a way that's like, wow, she's like, she comes across like a Harvard professor or something like just a really brilliant person. So I think she is really talented at communication, just really smart. So, so I, I, I still hold hope for her because of those, those things, but she hasn't been as prominent as Kamala Harris, of course, or um, uh, there's some other, some other candidates who Tammy Duckworth, uh, Stacey Abrams. Oh, Tammy Duckworth. I love as well. Um, yeah, Steve, Stacey Abrams, we've talked about, there's another, uh, someone from California who's have to Google, but, um, anyway, uh, I'll give it back to you, but, uh, you know, the, I, I think there are several amazing candidates and, um, I don't have any, you know, I haven't seen any real insight or clarity on who Biden connects with better, who he prefers for any reasons, um, but the, you know, obviously, some amazing choices and people he's worked with on a number of things. Yeah, Susan Rice has been getting some press um, for that purpose. Uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms. You know, there's some. But the, the way I'll describe it is, I'm, I have a, a preference for Harris. Her, her climate plan was head and shoulders above everybody else's. I really loved it. Yeah, um, that's part of it. I think she gets the law and order stuff because she was tough on crime of a specific type in um, California. She has some baggage. She, you know, hasn't um, refused to apologize for, you know, her quite successful takedown of Biden during the debates. She scored some, you know, significant points against him there. Um, but there are kind of two or three things. I mean, as I understand it, Obama's guidance to Biden was pick someone you like and can work with. Yeah, exactly. You know, so who knows what that's going to turn into. Yes, um, I, I think Biden really can work with a lot of people. Yeah, but it really comes down to kind of personal friendships and preferences. I think one the person I was Karen Bass, uh, mm. Karen Bass, who's uh, in Congress in in California. Yeah, well, so the one of, part of it is you know there's some of them are sitting senators, and the Senate has got a strong potential of going blue this time. You know, the gerrymandering thing, the discussion we've had around some of the losing white voters. Um, there's many more seats at play in the Senate this time around in the midterms. So, you know, there's a good chance of 52 seats being Democratic. And 538 has actually done the numbers and said 60 seats, which is filibuster proof, um, is within reach. Um, so there's a super, super majority, which is required to actually kill the filibuster, apparently, you know, to actually change the Senate rules. Um, that's unlikely, but 60 seats for the fill, you know, to be able to provide cloture against the filibuster is unlikely, but possible. But right now the Senate is the analysis I saw, saw 67% likely to go blue, um, which would be great. Um, but I, I will remind you that Obama had a blue Senate for the first two years of, um, his, his, uh, administration as well. And it didn't last. So got to keep going there. But back to VPs. So the primary thing that I'm looking at, you know, one of the things I've been poking at is all these people who say, well, don't pick a candidate based upon gender or ethnicity, but pick the best candidate. And um, two or three things spring out. 
Um, the first thing is there are 330 million people in the United States and tens of millions of them are black women. And of the tens of millions of them who are black women, an enormous number have ascended to the positions of being CEOs of companies um, or senators or mayors or police chiefs or, you know, army veterans who lost both legs in a helicopter uh, crash and have the purple heart. Um, these are among the best that you, the United States has ever produced. And they happen to be black and women. People are saying pick the best are really saying the best can only be white and male. <laughs> or, yeah. Or, or, you know, trying to guide the conversation so it doesn't look like a, uh, affirmative action or whatever. I mean, I, I personally agree that the, the absolute best options happen to be black women. Um, I mean, if you, I don't know, if you think about what a black woman has to go through to rise up, you know, they have to be extremely intelligent, determined, uh, uh, diplomatic, you know, I have to have the full package. Um, and Kamala Harris on your side, you know, amazingly was, thick skin. Yeah. Amazingly thick skinned, uh, you know, not, not driven by, by, uh, you know, just very rational. Well, I mean, in your case, Kamala Harris was the top, uh, you know, basically the number two le legal person in the country because she was number one in California, um, attorney general, uh, so basically only below the, the head of the Department of Justice in terms of uh, power and influence in the legal system. So she's, you know, she's as qualified. I mean, she's now, you know, in Congress, she's, she's as qualified as it gets. Uh, yeah, they're, they're all absurdly competent women. They are all far more accomplished than I, I, I've been. And they're amazing. And so saying that you have to pick the best, I'm sorry, can you define what you mean by best a little more clearly? <laughs> because these are stunning women. I honestly, for the past couple of minutes, I've been trying to think who would be other than that. You know, it's like, I can't even think of a, of a top contender who isn't a black woman. <laughs> I'm not even joking. It's like I mean, maybe there are a few white women. Yeah. At this moment in time, he's got to balance, um, you know, the, the VP pick is a balancing act, right? It's, it's um, done out of safety. It's done to pro, uh, appeal to a, a piece of the base, a um, energize a piece of the base that the primary doesn't energize, which suggests someone who's got more progressive credentials because Joe does not energize the progressive side of the base in the Democratic Party. It's designed to peel off voters from the independents, you know, if they're you know, to bring them in, it's appeal to designed to appeal geographically. Joe's got Pennsylvania roots, so he's kind of got heartland. He's got the tall white male Republican vote. Um, you know, he, as I think I said to you before, 2008 with O'Biden is deep into Republican territory in terms of the campaign. They're quite far right um, for the 2008 campaign. Um, you know, Joe could have been a Republican leader as opposed to a Democratic leader, not in the current Republican Party, but in the older Republican Party, the 80s and 90s. You know, it's an accident of fate that he ended up where he is. Um, and so you look at Joe and you say, yeah, we don't really need to uh, accommodate the, the Midwest. We've got Pennsylvania. We've got, you know, rural roots. We don't need to 
go after white suburban women because Joe is immensely appealing to them. The story of loss with his son is so heartwarming and so true. And his response was so true um, that women are going to look at that and go, yeah, he, he knows what it's like to be a dad. And he's one of, you know, I'd want him in my family. Um, he doesn't need people from the East Coast because he's been in Washington for a lot of years. Um, so he needs someone, you know, that's South or West. He needs females good, but he's got a lot of good white female. He's got the white female vote much more strongly already without doing anything. Black female, that's pretty appealing. And you start to kind of look around and go, well, uh, how can we get geographic dispersity appeal on other things? Remember that in my analysis of Biden's um, plan for uh, climate change, he kind of had the worst one. And Harris had the best one. You know, a big, a big swing state, uh, you know, law, law and order background. I think you're talking about Val Demings, aren't you? I know, I know. It's different, <laughs> right? There's all sorts of good reasons for all of these women. <laughs> Because, you know, Florida, I was looking at the stats on um, uh, 538 for Florida. And, yeah, she, he, you know, people who are from Florida, or sorry, camp, not, not Florida, uh, California, he's not going to win more seats and more votes in California because no, no, he can't. <laughs> it's like New York, right? Yeah. Um, but so that's the VP picks. It's interesting. So in eight days or so, we're going to get the announcement. And then that's going to be a buzz. And then the convention's going to hit. And it's going to be much more of a virtual convention, which is going to be really weird. Nobody knows quite what that's going to be like. Probably two hours a day of coverage from a virtual thing as opposed to an in-person thing. You know, very COVID-19 respectful and not a lot of screw-ups in terms of we're going to hold it, we're not going to hold it, we're going to hold it in this city. No, you're not going to hold it in this city because the RNC has been just like, all over the map. But let's talk about the RNC a bit here. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the Republican National Convention is, oh gee, a week later, because once again, week of news cycle for the Democratic Party, and then, oh, a different news cycle, and guess who's the Republican Party's turn? They don't schedule their conventions for the same time. All right, so the chattering classes get to chatter about the Democratic Party, and then, then the Republican comes up. So the Republican Party doesn't know what it's doing. Um, we're not going to have press. Oh, well, actually, we're not sure about that. We might have press in some things. Um, <laughs> really? So you don't know, they've been flip-flopping on where they're going to have it. They've been flip-flopping on where they're going to have press or not press. Um, you know, I, I've been engaging in some discussions online about um, potentially you know, what could happen at a closed Republican National Convention? Could Trump actually be voted out by an incumbent or by a, a challenger? Could he not get the nomination? And, and there actually is a path for that. It's just extremely unlikely. They, they, he's got um, sufficient um, delegates already locked up that, and they will vote for him on the first vote. But if something doesn't happen, if there's another vote, then they're not committed to maintaining their vote for the candidate they come with. Well, there's there's also the issue. I don't know if you want to talk about it. It's uh, there was some expectation, perhaps, that he would replace Pence with Nikki Haley of of South Carolina to try. Well, to- she's certainly been touting that. But then there's other people who've been pushing for Tucker Carlson. 
so that have you been aware of the Tucker Carlson for president I mean, I, campaign? I, I I got the idea that he was uh, yeah he's he's making he's he's got his eyes on the presidency for sure eventually. Um, I was not see, reading it as I didn't see much about it, but I wasn't reading it as this time. I, I thought it was about oh, but wait, wait for it later it, plans. It, you know, it's a presidential advisor David Duke who recommended that. <laughs> Uh, for those of you listening to the broadcast who are wondering why Zach and I are laughing about David Duke, he's the, what is it, the Grand Dragon Supreme Leader of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, white supremacist, central casting, and he thinks Tucker Carlson should be the Vice President of the United States with Donald Trump, which tells you a lot about Tucker Carlson. So let's talk about after the blue wave. Because I think this is interesting. I published some, you know, some stuff on this in the Clean Technic. I don't know if you had a chance to read that one, Zach. You, you mean assuming after the blue wave? You don't mean the blue wave of 2018. You mean uh, an assumed blue wave? Yeah. So right now, um, the statistics say a 95% chance Biden presidency, 95% chance blue house, and 67% chance blue senate. Blue wave, right? Supreme Court is what the Supreme Court is, which is to say a disappointment to evangelicals. With all those conservative appointments, they can't, still are not winning because judges are still sane. <laughs> um, and actually looking at the law, as opposed to saying, what does the Republican base want me to do? Um, uh, so a blue wave. Um, you know, the, the presidency and both houses of Congress are blue. What, what happens to the Republicans at this point? They've lost uh, the majority white vote they depended on. They've lost the, the suburbs. Um, they have even few, a few smaller percentage of the black vote than they had before. They've lost Latinos. They've lost everybody who cares about the climate. And they've suffered a potentially historic defeat. What do they do? And the question becomes, which path do they follow? Because they have a choice. They have a fundamental choice. Um, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned before, which is um, uh, the 2008 Obama-Biden um, Obama campaign. Yeah, I was. You, you keep saying that. I was like, I didn't know that was shorthand for them, Biden. <laughs> so, I don't. I don't think it's original to me, and it it's sticky. Um, <laughs> it's, okay. um, but the man right now, as Biden's running for president, you know, I know, I know. It's like, yeah. The um, the Manifesto Project is a um, European Economic Union uh, funded research program that looks at the campaign platforms of, West, of democracies around the world. So they have like 40 countries and there are 50 countries in there, um, not just the English speaking ones. They have, you know, all the European, all the EU, of course, um, but they also have Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, Mexico. And what they do is they look at every party, which actually gets more than like 2% of the, of the vote, you know, so not the tiny independent parties, but the real parties. And they say, they do an analysis which takes months um, or a year of each campaign platform and they rank it based upon various, various things. And they integrate that into a set of scales they've got going back to 1945 that say where on these scales of left versus right and a bunch of other factors, a bunch of other ways of splitting the data, do these parties, where are, they, where are they coming from? 
And so in 2008, Obama and Biden were quite far right of the median of democracies, you know, in the preceding few years. And in 2012, they swung back to a center-right position, which was a reasonable position, but still to the right of the median. 2016, Hillary Clinton's campaign was slightly to the left of the median of all of global democracies. You know, so it was actually a pretty reasonable place to be. If you consider you'd probably want a center-left and a center-right Big Tent party, which is theoretically, in, in theory, what the Republicans and Democratic Party are, that's not a bad position. You actually have a bit of progressive left-wing-ish stuff. It's not extreme. It's a reasonable place to, to campaign from. Um, and arguably, Biden is, you know, Sanders dragged Clinton, who was quite happy in the Obama-Biden administration. She's not a conservative. She's, or she's, not a, uh, she's not a deep progressive. She was a Republican in, in her high school years and adhered as much to center-right conservative principles, which are just fine and reasonable, for much of her career. Um, and so, but Sanders dragged her over to slightly center-left for her campaign, which is fine. Um, that's probably where Biden is going to end up as well. It's where the Democratic Party center is now is slightly center left by Western, uh, by demo democratic standards around the world, which is actually a pretty good place to be. You know, health care, environmental care, uh, rights for everybody, um, a, a managed, a regulated market, not a free, an unregulated free market, um, opportunity for all, you know, education. These are not terrible things. This is including, by the way, trade with other um, trade, being a member of the international community, adhering to your treaties. These are not unreasonable positions. So this is where Biden's going to end up. And I mean, as far as actually implementing policy, uh, there's an enormous amount to do just to get there, just to get center left. So it's like there, there, there's lots of work to do. There's um, no way you're getting further than that in any in the, in the coming term. But here's the thing. The Republicans have moved right. The manifesto project on the left-right scale says, yeah, the Democratic Party moved to the left. The Republican Party was already extreme by Western, by, by Democratic standards globally. They were among parties that were founded on um, purely racist or anti-Islamic principles. They're among, they're, you know, among the parties which are considered extreme far right in Europe is where their policies and stuff, they moved further right. And under Trump, as we discussed, they've been, um, you know, specifically having significant challenges about freedom of the press, um, freedom of speech, the right to protest, and other things which are deeply authoritarian far right policies from their perspective. And so the Trump and they're also leaning into, as Nixon did um, around the end of his you know, political career, law and order. So they're explicitly leaning into authoritarian, far-right, populist territory. And that's a long way out. And they're going to lose because of that. They're going to lose the, at least the presidency in the House, 95%, probably the Senate. Gerrymandering isn't going to work. So they have to reinvent themselves. For, for 60 years, they've been kind of trending in this direction. Um, you know, Republicans say this, Republican strategists said, 
yeah, it's just getting worse and worse over the past few decades, and I can't put up with it anymore. Uh, and it's understandable. I, I think I've told you this litany before, but let's go through it. In the 60s, they scooped up the racists with the Southern strategy in opposition to the civil rights movement. In the 70s, they scooped up the misogynists with their opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. In the 80s, they scooped up the young earth creationists, anti-evolutionists, anti-abortionists, and anti-science crowd with the moral majority alignment with Ronald Reagan. In the 90s, they scooped up the easily propagandized by leaning into Fox News' establishment as their propaganda arm. In the 2000s, they scooped up the climate change deniers and, you know, sucked in all the fossil fuel funding, so they locked into the climate change deniers and more science denial. In the 2010s, they've been leaning into anti-vax and getting that irrational anti-science wedge of the population to vote for them. Uh, midterms in 2018, five gubernatorial candidates were anti-vaxxers. Trump has tweeted anti-vax nonsense. Um, in Oregon, state Republican state representatives not only introduced an anti-vax bill, but actually left the state entirely to prevent passing of a pro-vax bill. You know, around COVID-19 now, the 2020s, we're seeing science denial around COVID-19 and a strong bi you know, uh, partisan refusal to accept vaccination for COVID-19. Or just wear a mask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is where they are. For 60 years, they've been leading into an increasingly irrational crowd. So you look very at that. Anti, very anti-science, very anti-other, and very conspiratorial. Um, uh, I said before, my first article about Trump running for president was, can the United States really elect a conspiracy theorist president? And uh, my concern was that we could, because I had seen how much conspiracy theory had had grown but um i guess we're getting close to it and um, no i i have a i have a finishing point in this okay. the point i was making is there's an awful lot of water between where the democratic campaign and the republican yeah. campaign so after a blue wave there's an opportunity for the republican party for a leader to arise who says i'm going to go center right we can win an awful lot of votes in the future if we tack over to the left to about where Biden and Obama were in 2008, or maybe just a little right at that, you know. Um, and we can, at that point, carve out a big swath of the American electorate, but we have to abandon some of our flakier subsets. We have to accept climate change for one thing, you know? Um, and so you start looking at that and you go, well, that's interesting. Um, who could lead that? Well, you, I looked at the Climate Solutions Caucus, which is a bipartisan caucus um, in Congress, which has both Republican and paired Democratic leaders on it. And I looked at some names, um, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, Susan Collins, Francis Rooney, Matt, Gates. One of these names just, just doesn't make a lot of sense. But you kind of look at that and you go, hmm. Murkowski is also very hard to believe. I mean, she was, she was like one of the most infamous anti-climate policy. Um, but she's from Alaska. Alaska is the yeah, hardest hit state already. Yeah, they've changed. Her position, her position was completely pro-oil. Now it's recognizing that they're getting that it's hitting them. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So Murkowski, you can imagine um, Marco Rubio, who tried for the presidency in 2016, candidacy, um, and Lindsey Graham, who's also a presidential candidate, you know, was trying for the candidacy in 2016. You know, and both of them are on record as saying climate change is real. Um, Florida and, you know, South Carolina, they're dealing with it as Murkowski is. You can see them standing up and you can see them pulling a Murkowski or a Collins from Maine um, as their VP pick or inverted. Murkowski coming forward, becoming the presidential pick from the last frontier um, and representing a moderate, compassionate conservatism that is center-right as opposed to far-right. So you can see that path and you can see them starting to find the ways to draw that over and depend on the tribalism of their extreme base um, and finding that center-right path. But then on the other hand, you can see the Trump 2.0 path. And you can see them going further and further into that extreme space where they have an inflamed base who really love them and keep saying how awesome they are as long as they adhere to the values tests. And you can see Gates or Cotton leading the charge in terms of that uh, representing and owning that part of the party. And so you can really see when they're in the wilderness, this real confusion about what's happened. Because I'm, I'm going to say, I'm just a guy in Canada who studies a lot, reads a lot about politics and looks at political analyses. And I can see the yawning chasm of, blue, of, of water between their campaigns and what that means strategically, politically for the Republicans. I can see their dwindling base. After Obama won, I'll just finish this thought. After Obama won, they went away and they said, we got to figure out how not to become the party of that's the dwindling rump of aging white people. And they failed miserably. This is not news. There are several um, notable longtime Republican strategists who have been very concerned about this. Uh, Michael Steele, for example, used to be head of the Republican National Party. committee uh who's uh, has been one of the best critics of trump um and project lincoln we already mentioned um you could see their their stuff out there as not just being anti-trump against trump because they're concerned of what trump is to to the country which they are um, but they could also be just trying to set the stage for how they regain their party um and you know, the more they can appeal to people in the left or center, the more when they try to stake their claim to the Republican Party, um, they could you know find momentum and and success. So th- that could be a big part of it. Um, you know, we'll see. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens post Trump in the Republican Party. Uh, so much of the, I mean, so much of the base just seems to be influenced by performance. So it's. Um, yeah, interesting topic. But maybe to close, uh, we haven't touched on the beast of 2020. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how you think uh, COVID-19 will influence the election and how you think it's um, transforming society in general, uh, politically. So before this call, I was on a call with um, uh, 13 people associated with a um, one of my startups. Um, we had... Um, among other people, we had a uh, Silicon Valley uh, 
psycho psychologist who deals with um, every uh, socioeconomic class in Silicon Valley. Um, as you said in the call, her office is a few blocks from the microships, the Microsoft spaceship uh, campus. Um, and she deals from top executives down to grocery clerks. Uh, she's turning away 100 people a week in terms of new clients because she has no capacity. Um, they're terrified. And, you know, people are crying on her couch. People are um, incredibly nervous about their jobs. They're terrified about COVID-19. They won't go back to work unless their kids can go back to school. And they won't, they won't send their kids back to school unless the schools are safe. Um, and I'm also reading right now the uh, Harvard Business Review's um, you know, series of articles. It's, uh, they've collected them as a book on how to return to this. And it's, it's all about how executive teams in the United States are um, paralyzed with indecision. They don't know what to do. And it's guidance on how they can manage through this period of deep uncertainty and, and how they can find ways to reduce their own anxiety and be high-performing and assist their teams. So this is all in context of, you know, a bunch of, you know, return to prosperity uh, stuff that I'm doing with this firm um, and a related firm, which is, you know, we're looking at enabling companies to bring back their uh, employees and know how many employees to bring back, to know that the employees they bring back are the, you know, they're, are safe to come back because they've been tested and assessed that only those people show up and they're scheduled to show up at certain times so they don't overload elevators. Um, and that those people when they arrive know what the operational procedures are that have been set up for their safety and the safety of their coworkers in these spaces. Um, you know, so that's the stuff I'm doing and it implies, you know, I'm, I'm getting a deep insight into the variance between the United States and Canada. Canada has a lesser extent of those concerns, but you know, Toronto's, downtown core is shut down right now. Um, the major, one of the major, you know, pretty much the biggest um, industry in downtown core of Tor Toronto is the financial sector, the major, major banks and the insurance companies in the central business district and all of the retail that's in the underground, um, you know, 31 kilometers of underground connected passageways with shops and restaurants and coffee shops and smoothie joints, they're all shut down too. Uh, the economy is stuck. Uh, Toronto lost $2 billion in um, income around SARS when the World Health Organization, you know, put a do not travel around it for a hundred cases. But that is being replicated across the United States, across Canada, around the world. The economy is suffering badly. From an economic perspective, this has multiple ramifications. First of all, the voter suppression around vote by mail um, that Trump is engaging in, and Republicans are engaging in, is explicitly designed to remove democratic voting. Um, no sense about they're trying to leverage that. They've got a new um, deeply partisan ahead of the United States Postal Service, and he's doing his bit for that. So that's a big risk. But the Democratic base is also highly motivated to get out and vote. But they know they're going to be in lineups with Republicans who don't think that distancing and masking makes a lot of sense. So there's going to be this strong nervousness. Um, 
it's yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to vote in in Florida. I'm not sure which which route I want to take. <laughs> I know. Well, Florida will get uh, mail-in ballots because Trump won't be able to vote otherwise. Um, <laughs> yeah, but still, the, I mean, I, the, the the stuff at the postal service is crazy. I mean, people worked there for decades. They're like, they've never seen anything like it. The back of I know. The mail. And it's just setting the stage for like, uh, oh, well, we just couldn't get it delivered. I mean, who knows what, I mean, it's it's crazy what's happened. Yeah, yeah no, there, there's um, think tanks that are spending enormous amount of time cycling through all the different ways that Trump could steal this election. And I finally, I finally got an answer um, about uh, who would actually enforce removing Trump from the Oval Office should he lose and refuse to leave. It's not the Secret Service. There is actually a White House police force. They would be tasked with escorting him out the door while the Secret Service would make sure they didn't harm him. <laughs> that would be entertaining. That would be entertaining. <laughs> Um, Seriously. But this is, this is where we are, right? We're, we're at this really unprecedented period while, of time. And while he pulls in his private military to fight off the U.S. military, which wouldn't do his bidding. I mean, that was, I mean, basically that, I mean, I don't know how much it was for other reasons, but, you know, he wanted the military to go into cities and the military leaders, heads of the chiefs of staff were like, no way, we're not doing that. You're crazy. And then a week or two later, maybe a little longer, we started seeing these, this, Department uh, of Homeland Security people, yeah. Private, private military going into Portland and stuff. So it's like, you know, the unfortunate thing is the guy doesn't seem to understand, you know, he doesn't seem to care at all about what's appropriate or, or legal. And, um, yeah, he's you know, the, basically it doesn't yeah, matter who put the top military brass push back and he doesn't care. He's just going to find a way around them with his private military. It's, well, the good news is, from my perspective, um, for Trump to stay in power after he loses an election, it would require uh, military backing and he's lost it. Yeah, right? but he's got that private military. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're, they're, they're DHS, the Department of Homeland Security is deeply conflicted. Um, he found people who were willing to do this stuff, um, but there's only so far they will go. Um, so I, my I, biggest hope is that he's typically incompetent. So yeah. So hopefully he'd be, even if he tried some kind of, I'm staying in office, he'd be too incompetent to succeed. And there's also, you know, some uh, rumor that people in his campaign don't want him to win. So you know, that everybody's <laughs> sick of him being in charge. Like so. Yeah. Well, I, I have to admit, I, uh, I've been mulling over what the transition briefings would look like. The um, Biden-Obama transition briefings, you know, by all, um, by all reports were, the, you know, among the best that had ever been done. They were clear, crisp, planned, complete. I mean, obviously the one that the pandemic response briefing is the one that was hitting the news, but they were all like that. They were all coherent. They all had, you know, professionals who were welcoming in uh, their counterparts on the other side and, and assisting them to get hit the ground running. So we know that's not going to occur. Um, I, you know, I think this is going to be the least organized, least professional uh, transition in decades or possibly, you know, a century. But it does, there's one piece of political theater which occurs to me. It is traditional for the president, outgoing president, to leave a handwritten note for the incoming president. And I'm just thinking about the Sharpie 
and the post-it note. Oh my god! <laughs> and on that note, I will leave. Let's let's turn this up, turn the volume up just for a bit. The blue wave means that next year, um, it's incredibly likely that the United States will uh, sign the Paris Accord. It will ratify the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which reduces HFCs. You'll start seeing a significant uptick in clean energy, in electric cars, in um, speeding up of certain rail service, especially in the eastern seaboard. You'll see um, you know, significant improvement in COVID-19 response, which, will, which is an ongoing concern, which will go through you know, probably 2022 at this point. Now, but just um, just to go back to that as for the closing, I do, what what are your uh, thoughts on how the COVID situation, both historically and going forward, will uh, is is influencing the p- politics? And um, I've been keeping track of statistics. The United States has some of the worst statistics for COVID nineteen globally. Um, people are dying. People's loved ones are dying. People's loved ones are in hospital or have significantly degraded health. And it's pretty clear that Donald Trump and his administration have completely mishandled it. Um, I I can't help but think that's going to motivate a lot of people who are not hardcore partisans to say, I'm not going to get out and vote for the person who's killed my mother or my father or, you know, put my child in the hospital. And it's going to mean that a lot of democratic people are going to do whatever it takes to figure out how to register and vote despite obstacles. And a whole lot of people are going to be motivated to find ways to assist people to register and vote. And they wouldn't have put that energy in before. It's a horrific experience. It's, I have to say, sitting outside the United States, being thankful the border is closed. Um, and looking at the number of countries that are refusing to allow Americans in and looking at the rest of the world opening up while the United States still thrashes in the midst of this, it's deeply distressing to me. And I know it's deeply distressing to the vast majority of people in the United States as well. I'm on calls with them you know, weekly and hearing the anxiety and the pain and the challenge that they're having. And I know that that's going to translate into an energized base or the blue side the side of sanity, the side that knows how to handle pandemics and that didn't politicize them in November. I, I think it's going to be good for the United States and good for the world. In that I'm hesitant to go into it because I, I didn't go into the study. I didn't even go past the headline, but there was a headline in The Hill, I think, yesterday that um, thehill.com, big political website, that uh, the U.S. had joined a list of list of 25 most miserable countries <laughs> like apparently somebody somebody does research on how miserable country countries are and the u.s is now in the top 25 so that's uh sort of a, a big um broad view of i think the effect of it all and how much that motivates people we'll see what that is the hour and a half um so Zach, uh, I think we, uh, do you want to end on a high note? I tried to end on a high note and you dragged yeah, me back know. to COVID-19. I know. I know. And, and, and the U S being at one of the 25 <laughs> countries in the world and you're, you're happy Canadian right now, but uh, no, yeah, I'll let you finish on a high note. Okay. Go ahead and- so November 3rd is going to be a blue wave. That's what all the statistics are showing. Um, 
The conditions for Trump winning in 2016 by 107,000 votes in three swing states aren't there this year. Uh, register, vote, and next year, the United States will be managing COVID-19 better. The world will be happier for both the United States and the rest of the world. The United States will start doing a climate change sensibly and like an adult in the room again, which the world will deeply appreciate and will be good for the United States. And the United States will be dealing, will sign, ratify the Kigali Amendment and the Paris Accord, and the world will breathe a sigh of relief. And the, world, the United States will actually once again be a credible counterweight to China, which it has not been for the past four years. Uh, China's ascendancy in terms of international stature is marked by the United States' diminution in international stature. And the world needs the United States. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to get it back. And I'm really positive about that. Everybody, this is Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, with your other host, Zach Shahan, who we're, and we've been chatting politics and you know the implications for climate change and clean tech policy for the past hour and a half. Um, keep posted. Uh, Zach, do you have any upcoming uh, uh, things you've hosted that you want to plug? Oh, we've got a lot of fun stuff going. We more more podcasts on mining um, for EV batteries, uh, uh, new, new compelling electric vehicles, um, and other fun topics. Excellent. And, you know, this weekend, apparently, uh, the major report that um, uh, I published through Clean Technic is finally going live, uh, Machine Learning Plus Clean Technology, forwarded by Paul Verbos, a um, former program manager with the National Science Foundation in the United States. And I'll be talking with Paul on a podcast in the next few weeks. Okay. Zach, thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.